This is Barry Zelma, Zelma on insurance. I'm an attorney who has retired from the practice of law and now spend my time as an insurance claims consultant and insurance claims expert witness and author and producer of these videos. Today I'd like to talk about the evidence needed to prove fraud. First, we must understand that evidence is broken into two major categories, direct and circumstantial. Direct evidence is proof that tends to show existence of a fact in question without the intervention of the proof of any fact. It includes testimony that tends to prove or disprove a fact in issue such as eyewitness testimony or a confession. Sometimes direct evidence may not exist because records have been destroyed in a fire, destroyed by water, stolen, discarded, or even eaten by vermin. If direct evidence does not exist for any reason, circumstantial evidence may be produced to prove the fraud. As important as direct evidence is to the proof of fraud or attempted fraud, as courts have noted in the past, it can be difficult to obtain direct evidence of something so intent as to commit fraud. Consider United States versus Washington, a 2013 case from the Sixth Circuit. Jurors are therefore free to consider circumstantial evidence and draw reasonable inferences with it. In United States v. Hawkins, a 2019 case from the Sixth Circuit, circumstantial evidence was sufficient to allow a jury to convict a criminal. Circumstantial evidence is all evidence of an indirect nature when the existence of the principal fact is deduced from evidentiary facts by a process of probability reasoning. The investigator takes circumstantial evidence and uses deductive reasoning to reach a conclusion. Circumstantial evidence and the deductions of a professional investigator are often more reliable than direct evidence like eyewitness testimony. Circumstantial evidence is sufficient to establish proof of arson and other criminal activities and other kinds of insurance fraud. Many fraud cases are proved entirely by circumstantial evidence or by a combination of circumstantial and direct evidence, but seldom by direct evidence alone. Fraudulent intent, the most difficult element to prove in many fraud cases, is usually proven circumstantially, and necessarily so, because it's impossible to produce direct evidence of the defendant's state of mind, absent a confession or the t testimony of a co-conspirator. In, in a circumstantial case, the court may instruct the jury that the prosecution or the insurer must exclude all inference from the facts other than its determination of fraud. If the trier of fact can infer
prefer a legitimate rather than a fraudulent explanation for a series of events, the insurer's defense or the prosecution will fail. Even if no such instruction is given, the investigator and adjuster should apply the same standard when preparing a circumstantial case for trial. Occasionally, as in the Indiana case of Hicks versus State of Indiana, a 1987 case, a thief will attempt to defeat a burglary claim by claiming it was part of an insurance fraud scheme. If the victim instigated the crime as part of an insurance fraud, there can be no conviction for burglary. However, adjusters like the prosecutor in the Hicks case should be very leery of such confessions, as they may often and are mostly and usually fabricated. An insured should never be accused of fraud based on an accused felon's statement unless independent, innocent witnesses corroborate the felon's charges. In the Hicks case, the court found appropriate cross-examination on the fraud claim and affirmed a 30-year sentence by stating, quote, During cross-examination, the prosecutor asked Smith if he created the story of the insurance fraud scheme. Smith responded that he had not and stated that the scheme had been planned prior to August 2, 1982, burglary of the Robbins home. The prosecutor then offered into evidence States Exhibit Number 38, a letter written by Smith to the appellant on August 14, 1982, in an attempt to discredit Smith as a witness. Cross-examination is permissible as to the subject matter covered on direct examination, including any matter which tends to elucidate, modify, explain, contradict, or rebut testimony given during direct examination by the witness. In another case, the court noted that fraud is usually so covert or attendant with such attempts at concealment as to be incapable of proof other than by circumstantial evidence. In a suit against an insured, an insurer can never be too well prepared. In a Utah case, an insurer recognizing that it was not a favored litigant presented over 200 pages of documentation detailing the extent of its damages and the grounds for its summary judgment. The Court of Appeals in Amica Mutual v. Shetler, a 1989 case, affirmed a summary judgment in favor of the insurer for fraud and awarded compensatory and punitive damages to the insurer. Some guidance offered by trial courts which have articulated several factors as indicia of a non-accident or fraud include more than one collision within a short time of a policy's inception, cancellation of the policy shortly thereafter for non-payment of premium, similarities among 
the collisions and interrelationships among the parties, inconsistencies in testimony regarding the circumstances of the subject collision and the identities of the individuals involved. Such factors, in various combinations, have been held to constitute a compelling and persuasive body of circumstantial evidence that the underlying loss resulted from an intentional collision staged for the purpose of insurance fraud. Some courts apply the clear and convincing standard of evidence, which is a very difficult and stringent standard to establish. In New Jersey, for example, in the case of Italian Fishermen versus Commercial Union, a 1987 case, the court refused to accept the clear and convincing evidence standard of proof proposed by the plaintiff in an insurance fraud defense, pointing out that proof of fraud by a preponderance of the evidence, that's 50% plus one, which is much easier to establish than the clear and convincing evidence standard, renders the insurance policy void from its inception. As another New Jersey court stated, this court has previously addressed the nature of arson defense and the quality of evidence necessary to support that defense. The arson defense is most accurately viewed as an allegation that the insured purposely created the loss and therefore should not benefit from it. To succeed on a defense of arson for profit, an insurance company must show by a preponderance of the evidence that the loss was due to a fire of incendiary origin, that the insured had an opportunity to set the fire, and that he had a motive to do so. It matters not whether the jury determines that the insured personally set the fire or did so through the acts of another. The key is that the insured caused the fire to be set. The Ninth Circuit explicitly rejected the notion that a defense of arson can be defeated by a failure to prove that the insured himself was the arsonist. If sufficient facts are present, it is easier to prove rescission than an accusation that the insured committed the criminal act of insurance fraud. Rescission in many states can be had even if the insured had no intent to defraud the insurer. To prove the crime of fraud, on the other hand, the prosecutor or the defense attorney is required to prove an evil or criminal intent and must prove it beyond at least a preponderance of the evidence, evidence of prior claims, whether fraudulent or not, is admissible to show motive, intent, means and opportunity to commit insurance fraud. Evidence of past welfare fraud is admissible to show that the defendant was willing to engage in dishonest conduct to beat the system. When plaintiffs make claim under the 
Florida Civil Remedies for Criminal Practices Act, which provides that any person who proves by clear and convincing evidence that he or she has been injured by reason of any violation of the provisions of Section 772.103 shall have a cause of action for threefold the damages sustained and in any such action is entitled to minimum damages in the amount of $200. This includes insurance fraud as it is defined in Florida statutes. Nevada provides both statutory and common law remedies to check insurance fraud. Moreover, punitive damages were available under Nevada law if a jury was to find clear and convincing evidence of fraud or misrepresentation. Insurers also were able to rely on the statutory fraud provisions when they were victims of fraud. RICO, the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organization Act, can be applied in harmony with the state's regulation of insurance fraud, according to State Farm Mutual versus Point Therapy, a uh, 2014 case out of the Eastern District of Michigan. An insurer need only prove arson by a preponderance of the evidence at least according to the New Jersey court in Olasak versus Central Mutual, a 1987 case, that found the defense of arson against a fire insurance claim is established if it is proved by a preponderance of the evidence. The United States Court of Appeal for the Third Circuit held that in New Jersey, a defense based on fraud in an insurance application must be proved by clear and convincing evidence, but distinguished the arson defense and indicated that the defense need only be proved by a preponderance of the evidence. Now, also to defeat a fraudulent claim, it is necessary to prove scienter or evil intent. In fraud cases where intent, knowledge, and evil intent or scienter constitute essential elements of the offense evidence of similar frauds and misrepresentations are admissible at trial the insurer need only demonstrate the facts elicited during an investigation that support the founded belief that a fraud was attempted Circumstantial evidence is sufficient to prove such facts if a party's conduct may be reasonably inferred based upon logical inferences to be drawn from the evidence. In Mutual of Omaha versus McBride, a 1983 case from Oregon, the court held that clear and convincing standard of proof generally applicable in fraud cases does not apply to proof of misrepresentation under Oregon statutes. In that case, the court noted the purpose of the statute is to discourage insurance fraud, and the purpose would be thwarted with a higher standard of proof. That purpose would also be thwarted if the court was to adopt a scienter element that is more difficult to prove.
the element of scienter as an element of actionable fraud is imputable when the statement is attended by reckless indifference to its truth or falsity on the part of one making it. The courts will not and should not make insurance fraud more difficult to prove than common law fraud. This video was adapted from my book, Zelma on Insurance Claims, Part 110, Second Edition, which is available as both a Kindle book and as a paperback from Amazon.com and from my website, Zalma.com, by clicking on the link to the Insurance Claims Library, which will explain to you all of my books available uh, from Amazon and from other publishers. If you found this video to be useful, please refer it to your colleagues. It's free. And please subscribe to my blog so that you can learn about future blogs and future videos that I tend to post on a daily basis. Thank you again for your attention.